The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. Our text this morning is going to be ambitiously to cover the entire chapter of Acts chapter 3. In order to do that, I think we first have to get a, a placeholder in our mind of what exactly has taken place so far in the book. So allow me to catch you up what's taken place in chapters 1 and 2. The book begins with Jesus' ascension and his final words to the apostles. The opening verses make it clear that what we read about in the gospel accounts was focused on what Jesus did during his earthly ministry, but the book of Acts reveals to us that this is the continuation of Christ's work to build his kingdom. It is not a separate thing. This is the entire goal of Jesus' ministry, to save a people for himself, to redeem the church. As such, we see the apostles and many others who trusted in Christ do exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went into Jerusalem to the upper room and they waited. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and he did so with great sound of mighty rushing wind. And as he did, he rested upon the apostles like tongues of fire. What did that look like? I have no idea. But then they went out into the marketplace proclaiming the gospel. And the Holy Spirit empowered them to overcome the language barrier by teaching in various languages that they had never studied, that they had never learned. And this was to show the authenticity of the work of the Holy Spirit's involvement in their preaching. Peter preached the very first sermon recorded in church history, and 3,000 people were saved and added to the number of the church that day. And at the close of chapter 2, we read that the church is unified in purpose, that they are devoted to prayer, that they are committed to sacrificially serving one another. Which brings us now to our text this morning. Please follow along as I read. Follow along in your own Bible, starting in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, 
why do you wander at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who have come after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. God, I ask a blessing over this sermon this morning. Just as we sang moments ago, I pray, Lord, that you would show us Christ. The purpose of Peter's sermon was to show the people Christ. I pray that the purpose of my sermon today would to be to show Christ. But Lord, I know that regardless of my intentions or capabilities or limitations, Lord, I'm only capable of proclaiming words. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you can change hearts. So I pray that this morning you would be actively involved in changing the heart and mind of individuals so that it would conform to the image of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would destroy any gods of our imagination, any false perceptions of Christ, and we would have clarity about who he is and what he has done and what that means for us and what we are required to do in response. So God, I pray that today's sermon would be effectual, that it would be uplifting and encouraging. I pray that it would stoke zeal like a fire being fanned into flame. And God, I pray that today as we are hearing your word, that it would be spoken in truth And I pray that you would give me the ability to say everything accurately. If there is anything that you desire for me to keep from my notes, that you would eliminate them from my mind. And God, I pray that only truth would be spoken today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This text is a very familiar one to most of you. If you grew up in the church, it's very possible that you grew up singing the very same children's song that I grew up singing about Peter and John went to pray. Now, I would sing it for you but I don't really want your ears to start bleeding. It's not only a well-known text, it's also a very straightforward one. 
There are no major theological curveballs. There's no deep doctrinal divide over what's happening here. However, I want you to always remember that simple does not necessarily equal insignificant, and definitely not in this case. And just like any passage of Scripture, it's possible for you to know all of the facts, although I would argue you probably don't. But it is possible to know all of the facts and still not believe it in your heart. It is possible to know the details but not obey the text. So today I hope that you learn a lot of information in your mind from the text. But if you know the details, I am praying that you will know Christ better after hearing these words today. Our approach this morning will be to consider three main characters. I'm sorry, the two main characters in this story. We're first going to talk about the beggar, the man who was healed. Secondly, we're going to talk about Peter, and specifically with Peter, there is a third element with the crowd, but we're going to focus on how Peter proclaims to the crowd. So with each of those two, with the beggar and with Peter, we'll consider three applications. I anticipate that this will be a very practical sermon this morning. We begin with the beggar. The world was an incredibly different place 2,000 years ago. In fact, the world today does not have a lot of what we have here in the United States. There are no wheelchairs in the first century. There is no social safety net with those with physical disabilities. In fact, most of our social awareness about these issues here in the United States is incredibly recent. For example, look around this building. One of the great frustrations I have with this building is that there is no accessible way for people with lower body disabilities to enter the building. And even if we could build a ramp, which we've examined and tried to figure out how to out there, which is very difficult, if not impossible, if we were to do that, then there's no way for us to get people into the basements for the use of the bathrooms in this building. This building was not designed with the idea of how do we serve those who have this kind of need. This is a very unusual and new thing in human society to think carefully about how to serve those with these kinds of conditions. And the first century had nothing of the sort. And notice that he is in this place daily being carried to this location so that he can beg. The lame man in this passage has nothing going for him. His entire life is sad from what we can see. From the time that he was born, he was unable to walk. And Luke informs us that he's been for 40 years unable to walk. And most likely, he has been begging at this same spot almost every day for the overwhelming majority of his life. Someone would carry him to this place. He would sit there in front of this gate, the gate called the Beautiful Gate. One thing that Luke does surprisingly and incredibly and particularly well in his writing is to emphasize these big contrasts that take place throughout the Gospel of Luke and here in the book of Acts. And the beautiful gate was the main gate to the court of the Gentiles. It was massive. It was carved out of stone, and the stone was intricately carved with interesting designs. And all the way up, it came into an arch. And then there were two massive bronze gates made out of Corinthian bronze, one of the most expensive metals of the day. There were very few places in the world at this time that had a place so incredibly artistic and beautiful. It was magnificent. It was a masterful work of art, and it was incredibly rare. And sitting right in front of it was this man. This is intentionally designed to be a contrast for the reader. I don't know if you've traveled around the world to great monuments that exist today. 
the Eiffel Tower, the Colosseum at Rome, the Taj Mahal. If you go to any of these places, they seem to be attraction points for people in this kind of situation worldwide. People who have these kinds of of disabilities, who are out in the street begging, will find their place around around a monument like this so that they might ask for money. And why do they do that? Because that's where the people who have extra money in their pocket go. That's where the tourists go. That's where those who are on pilgrimages go. They want to see these things and they have some cash. They feel pity and they will give it to the individual who is begging. So this is a place where many passerbys would enter into the temple. And this is why we see him sitting in this location. It's interesting that the Bible shows us kind of what his heart probably felt like as he was sitting there begging in this one little phrase where it says that he didn't even look up at Peter and John. He just seems to be holding his hand out with his eyes down to the ground. He was probably, he probably hated this fact that he had to beg. If you've ever been very destitute, you've been in a difficult situation, you know it is not fun to ask others for money. You, it is difficult for you to ask others if, to fulfill a need that you have. He must have hated begging in order to have food on his table. He must have been discouraged and felt very small every time he asked somebody for help, and they simply ignored him and passed him by. And he probably felt small even, ta- even the times that somebody did pass by and dropped a few coins into his cup, because they probably didn't even stop to say hello. They treated him as an opportunity to feel better about themselves rather than a real person that they really cared about. So you throw a few coins in the cup and just keep on walking. This man doesn't even look up. He is probably so used to being overlooked by every person who walks in and out of that place that he has nothing to do but look at the ground. But this day was different. Peter doesn't have money to give him, but he has something a lot better. And Peter told him that he was to get up and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Surely this man knows who Jesus is. This man is sitting at the temple. He is sitting right at the entrance to the court of the Gentiles. Perhaps he was begging the day that Jesus made that whip out of cords and he made people leave the temple. He was in the court of the Gentiles when he took that whip and he began to make people in John chapter 2 leave that place. Perhaps he was sitting at the gate just two months earlier when Jesus went in and he flipped over the tables of the money changers. That happened right inside of this gate. Perhaps he was sitting there when Jesus had conversations day after day during Passion Week with all of the religious rulers, conversation after conversation, conflict after conflict, people who kept trying to convince the people that Jesus was their enemy, and Jesus kept showing them that he was not only logically superior, but spiritually and morally superior to them as well. He must have heard what was taking place. If not the words of Jesus, there was a lot of chatter going around about Jesus. He knows who this man is. And he probably, from this location, could have even looked across the valley and seen Golgotha, where Jesus was hanging on the cross. Perhaps he was sitting there that day, watching. It would have been the greatest day of the year for him to receive alms, because that is the number one day of the year for people to take their sacrifices into the temple. It is the most likely day for him to receive money from begging. He was probably sitting right there, and in the distance, just a mile or less away, could see Jesus hanging on the tree. It is likely that this man knew exactly who Christ was. We also know that this man responds in faith. It is not just that Peter grabs him and pulls him up. 
We see later in the text that it says that he has faith in this man's name. So the fact that he declares Jesus' name and says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, is a huge deal. It is clearly the power of Jesus that healed this man's legs, and he was lifted to his feet, and he began walking and leaping and praising God. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is supposed to be a picture representing you. And if you're a Christian, this is a picture of your salvation. As we read about this event, it is clear that it is designed to point to deeper spiritual realities of what it means to be moved from darkness into light, from death to life, from being spiritually lame and incapable of making your way into the temple to having the ability to go in and worship the Lord. In Greek, the word to heal someone is the same exact word as to save someone. The verb sozo, same thing, heal or save. This is one of the reasons why in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, Luke, who was a physician, a doctor by trade, so regularly parallels the miraculous healings with spiritual healings, which leads us now to our first of three applications from this man. Application number one. See yourself like God sees you. The Bible teaches us that we are absolutely helpless and hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. We are born under sin, and it has affected every last aspect of our life. Just like this man was born incapable of walking, you are born a sinner by nature. The imagery of this beggar is designed to show us the contrast between what God has designed us to be and what we are because of sin. Let's push this metaphor beyond the physical and into the spiritual, and then you see the point. It reveals that we are all desperately in need of the work of Christ in order to redeem us and to restore us from our fallen state. If you're not a Christian, first of all, thank you for coming today. But I want you to know you cannot do either of the following applications I'm about to share with you unless you first see yourself rightly in the way that God reveals us to be in the scripture. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is you and that is me. And if you do not see yourself as an enemy of God, then you can never turn to him for salvation. You must first come to the end of yourself and see your great need, and then you can turn to Christ for salvation. Application number two from the beggar. Pursue fellowship with Christ like he is your friend. By this, I am not speaking about running to Christ for salvation, although that is true and necessary. I am now speaking about what we do after we have been saved, after we have placed our faith in Jesus. Notice the reaction of the beggar here. You get the same sense of his spiritual state in that he ran into the temple to join Peter and John in prayer. I imagine that this man must have pondered on many occasions, what would I do if I had the use of my legs? If, I, if, I, if my ankles and my calf muscles and my feet were really strong, just like all these people walking in here, what would I do with my life? He probably had a checklist of desires, things that he wanted in life. Yet, what happens as soon as he has the use of those, those uh, parts of his body? What does he do? He runs and he leaps and he jumps, but he does so in the direction of the Lord. He goes into the temple to pray and to worship. Now that he has the capability, he doesn't run home. He doesn't rush to play a sport. He doesn't run off to get a job. He goes into the place of worship. 
Now, you can tell a great deal about the genuineness of somebody's faith by how they act towards God when everything is going well. It's an almost universal reaction from people to call out to God when their life is terrible or they're experiencing hardships. Even atheists that I've known in the past have asked me to pray for them when their life is difficult. They don't even believe in the God that I'm praying to, but yet they will ask me, please pray to that God of yours because life is so difficult, I will do anything to make the pain stop. And then when the pain stops, what happens? They continue in their disbelief. But what happens when we stop hurting in our lives is a significant indicator of the levels of our faith. When people have what they want and life is good, they reveal how their faith is either full or fraudulent in the way that they are chasing Christ or they are chasing safety. What is your devotional life like when your, prayer, when your paycheck is high? What is your prayer life like when you have perfect health? What is your hunger for the word when you experience no persecution? The gospel is not just a break glass in case of emergency kind of situation. It is not just a pill or a pick-me-up to take when you are in difficult situations. This word of God is precious and it's significant and important where we meet with God daily. Do you love him? Is it revealed in the way that you were dedicated to him? Jesus says that he has made us his friend. And as believers, we show our faith both in good times and in bad. So I encourage you who are currently lazy in your faith, set your eyes on Jesus every day and pursue him as the only passion of your life that satisfies. Application number three from the beggar. Rejoice like you have really been saved. I want you to see not only the direction that he moved toward the temple, but also the passion of that movement. Yes, the healed man went into the temple, but he did so exuberantly with vivacious jubilation. He saw the muscles that he had never used in his life all of a sudden become full and strong and powerful around his ankles. And he was now able to do that which he had previously been incapable of doing. Before you know Christ, you cannot worship him. Now that you know him, you can worship him. So as we read that this man was walking and leaping, I imagine that he was literally trying to max out his vert as he is jumping to test the limits of his newfound strength. He is jumping as high and as far and running as fast as he can, testing out the strength of these new muscles. Let's talk for a moment about your joy. True Christians who have been saved from the horrors of hell should be the most expressively exuberant people on earth. I can think of very few things more blasphemous than somebody who is in a worship service like this one who is, during the singing, doing something like this. You are highly exalted. Name above all names. Would you praise? You are reigning in glory. Jesus, you are the King. It is disturbing, honestly disturbing, that we who have been redeemed from the pit of hell are not expressively joyful with what God has done for us, that we won't declare with our mouths what we know to be true of our soul. We have every reason to rejoice in the glories of Calvary, but I'm not just talking about singing at church, although that that is one thing I'm talking about. I'm speaking about the everyday activity of your life. Is your heart inclined to lift your eyes to heaven and give glory and honor and adoration to the king? Or are your eyes just glued to the things of this world? 
Psalm 107 verse 2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Have you been redeemed? Let's say so. Say so, church. Say so and proclaim his goodness to anybody who will listen. Just like this guy. He's not afraid of what people think of him. He's never cared about that because people have always thought he's nothing. And the reality is, if you see yourself rightly, like we saw before, you will recognize that you and of yourself, in and of yourself are nothing. But it is God who is good and God who has done work. So proclaim this to anyone who will hear you. And when there's nobody to listen... Proclaim it to yourself. Never move past the great kindness that's been shown to you in the gospel. Whether you're loud and gregarious and outgoing and an extrovert, or if you're calm and quiet or introverted like most of the people here in our church, it does not matter. Wherever you are on that spectrum, you should be both internally and externally rejoicing about the salvation that you have experienced. You should be willing to proclaim that in the way that you communicate every single day. God has made you unique. He has made me unique. We do not communicate the same way. But however God has made you to rejoice, do it. Let's move now to consider Peter's role in this story. Specifically, since we already know how he acted in the healing of the blind man, let's consider right away three applications from his example. First, pray like you really need Jesus. Notice that this event begins when Peter are on their way to pray at the temple. Uh, When I was preparing the sermon, this really stood out to me more than almost anything. It's astounding to me as a pastor, consider the fact of what's just taken place in their congregation. Just days earlier, maybe the day before, they had 120 people in their group. They're in the upper room, they're praying together, and then in one day, their church goes from 120 people to somewhere at least 3,120 people, and Peter is the chief apostle responsible for shepherding the souls of all of these people. Our little church is nowhere near that size, yet I often find myself overwhelmed and exhausted and in over my head. But what does Peter do? How does he spend his time? He is going with John to pray. Nobody can read the book of Acts and make the argument that prayer is unimportant or insignificant. It is a constant reality for the early church that every time they were together, they were committing themselves to prayer. Two weeks ago, I noted that prayer was integral to the unity of the body. We see that on a small scale here as we see it in Peter and John who go together to pray. It's Peter and John. These two guys who are the quintessential opposites on the scale of what it means like personality-wise in the apostles, these two guys, it's clear from the the gospel accounts that they have a bit of a competitive competitive spirit towards one another. They've got a little bit of a a streak going where they're pushing back and forth on one another, yet now we see these two walking together to pray. And on the way, they see a man who they probably passed by many times before, but this time is different. They stop and heal this man, and this leads into another opportunity for Peter to preach a captive, to a captive audience. Charles Spurgeon once said, If I feel myself disinclined to pray, then it is the time when I need prayer more than ever. You, you must fight for a strong prayer life as an individual. J.C. Ryle speaks to the need for this when he says, Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke out prayer. But 
we must not only have a private prayer life, we must also have a strong practice of corporate prayer, which is the majority of what we see taking place in the book of Acts. Our pastoral prayers on Sunday mornings are not just time fillers or just kind of fluff to get us through a service. Those prayers are specifically designed to show love and compassion and to point you to how we should pray for one another. When we pray together at Stay and Pray, this is not just one thing we add to the calendar for the sake of having a robust calendar. It is the core of what we must do together as a church. John Owochenkwa says in his book on prayer, a church that practices prayer is more than a church that learns. It's also a church that leans. We learn dependence by leaning on God together. Regardless of how busy our lives are, you are not too busy to pray. Application number two from Peter. Share the gospel with compassion like Christ. Let's talk for a moment about genuine compassion. I want to do this by seeing the seeming contradiction between what Peter says to this man and the words that we find in the book of James. When speaking about faith and works, James says in James two fifteen through 17 he makes this argument. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you sees them and says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Yet in this passage, Peter says to the man, I know what you want. I know that you want money. I know that you're begging for money. I know that you're holding out your hand so I can give you money, but I can't give you that. Imagine the extreme disappointment that probably went across the face of this beggar. Imagine how he must have felt at that moment. This man walks by and says, look at me. He must have been expecting a large gift. And he says, I don't have any silver or gold. Probably a broken heart at that very moment. But Peter promises something something to him much better than he could have ever asked for. Genuine compassion is not simply born out of seeing somebody who has less than you and giving them what you have. Eventually, that kind of compassion fades away. Or you're eventually going to run out of money to give to those kind of people. But true compassion comes by seeing the deeper need that all people share. Jesus looked upon the crowds and felt pity on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, because they didn't know Jesus. The, the vivid metaphor that is being presented by this story is that people are looking for topical, surface-level band-aids to cover the symptoms of their own depravity. However, they are often not seeking for the cure of their deepest needs. We'll consider this on a church-wide level in a moment. Well, let's think through this on a personal level now. How different would it be if you were constantly reminded that the overwhelming majority of people that you know are running at a breakneck speed toward hell? If you truly believe in the wrath of God, and if you truly believe in the grace of God that has come through the gospel, then it should give you that softness and awareness and consistency of proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. It should give you the desire to give them the gospel any way possible. As verse 4 says, and Peter directed his gaze at him. That phrase literally means that he was staring at the man intently. He felt compassion for the man. He stopped and he saw what was taking place here, and he felt something for him. 
Today is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Moms, you have the hardest job in the world. Uh, that's not even questionable. Uh, this week, my wife had to do a CPR test or some other things like that surrounding that CPR examination and certification. And so for the day, I had the kids and I was responsible for driving them from place to place and doing things with them. And when I got back home, I was so exhausted, I literally had to take a nap. I have no idea how she does it and so does it so well. I, I, I just think, ladies, you have a huge responsibility and it's much greater than most of us comprehend. But I want you to, to be encouraged to view this time with your children for what it is. They are just like this lame man, and you are just like Peter. If you are a Christian, your children need that gospel that has changed your life. Your kids have many needs. Every day you have to feed them. Once in a while, I guess, you have to bathe them. You have to take care of them. You have to do things that are necessary to keep them alive. You have to teach them not to do things that would otherwise kill them. You must train their mind. You must try to help them succeed in life. You want to help them do well in school and in sports and to have lots of friends. But none of those is your primary goal or mission or responsibility before God. It is your responsibility to consistently see the deepest need, which is to be reconciled to God. Now now I'm talking not just to moms, I'm talking to dads too. And everyone else in the church because we care for the children of one another. Let me tell you, at your dinner table, that is your pulpit. That's where you proclaim the gospel to your kids. When you're disciplining them with love, you have an opportunity to use that as a pulpit to proclaim the gospel to your kids. There are a lot of wrong ways to view your your kids, but the worst one is to ignore their soul. So see the need and show compassion on them by giving them the gospel daily. Now let's look at this on a pastoral level for a moment, considering the entirety of the church. There is a debate in the preaching world about what we should focus on when we're proclaiming the word. What should the purpose and and goal of a sermon actually be? And oftentimes, the modern church movement has determined that it is best to preach what they call to the felt needs of people. The problem with that is, most of the time, the felt needs of a person are not the main real needs of the person. The problem is most of these felt needs would be dealt with by exposing the deeper need and curing the deeper problem of their spiritual need. As we see in a minute, Peter's sermon does not put an emphasis on felt needs of the people, but the unfelt need of their soul. Peter's sermon is absolutely filled with things that many modern churches refuse to say from their pulpits. Notice how Peter lays the death of Jesus at their feet in verses 13 through 15. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. So far, thumbs up, everything good. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. What an incredible paradox. This is one of the most stark and bitter oxymorons in the history of the universe. You killed the author of life. Though they had not hammered those nails personally, he lays them right there at their feet and says, this was you. You are guilty. 
Likewise, church, a true gospel message begins with the news that you are an enemy of God, that your sin has separated you from your God. Peter explains their actions this way in the following verses. <coughs> following verses. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled. Now he recognized that they don't fully understand their actions, but he does not excuse them. There are millions and millions and millions and millions of people today who are also guilty of the death of Christ, who do not understand their sin as what it is. They do not think of sin in the great weight and great evil that it is. They don't think that it's really a big deal to do what they would call the small stuff, little white lies. doesn't matter. It's just simple things. It's just the way that we act in our culture. It's just the way that I grew up. It's just, you know, I have a, a guy who told me, I'm, I'm Irish, so I'm angry. No, that doesn't make sense. You can't blame it on the fact that you have 2,000 years of Irish heritage. That means nothing before God. You are angry because you're a sinner, and people see this as no big deal. But it is a big deal to God. One sin, one sin is enough to separate you from God forever. Because God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, one sin is enough to make us completely broken and shattered before him. And in James chapter 2, it tells us that one, if you've broken one law, you are guilty of them all. He recognizes that they don't understand their actions, yet he doesn't excuse them. There is no excuse for sin. He does not say, since you didn't realize what you were doing, it's not a big deal to God. Let's say that you're driving 75 miles per hour and you go through a school zone and all of a sudden you hear the woo and you pull over and then a police officer steps up to you and says, do you realize how fast you were going? You're like, I don't know, 75. And the guy's like, yeah, 75 in a 20 mile per hour school zone while the kids are supposed to be walking across the crosswalk. It doesn't matter if you say, I had no idea. I had no idea that it was a school zone. I had no idea the speed limit was 20 miles per hour. It doesn't matter because you broke the law and because you endangered children's lives. So you get a ticket for $190 or whatever. He has the right to give you that ticket even if you didn't know because you were breaking the law and you were putting others in danger. We know that their sin is not overlooked due to ignorance because of the very next thing out of Peter's mouth. Notice what he says. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Yeah, you did this in ignorance, but you're still required to repent, this is another thing that many modern churches are allergic to saying. Repent, therefore. Repent and turn back. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will all be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That means them and that means you. If you are a Christian, you are a witness to Christ. The question is, what kind of witness are you? This text is calling on us to preach the gospel with compassion to all we encounter by seeing their deepest need, which means that we must not be shy or shy away from people by telling them the bad news of their current state and then giving them the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus' work at the cross. Even though people might not take it this way, it is a blessing that you would shine the light of the gospel in their direction. Consider the very final sentence of Peter's sermon. He says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him 
to you first, to the Jewish people, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So I implore you, share the gospel with true compassion. It is a blessing to all who hear it, whether they acknowledge that or not. So share the gospel with compassion like Jesus Christ. And now for our final application from Peter. Do not take credit for that which does not belong to you. Look at verses 9 through 12 again. It says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Later in verse 16, he adds, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter is getting massive amounts of attention for doing this miracle. It's likely that everyone in the temple has seen this beggar on a daily basis for years. And they know that he's not acting. They know that he's not pretending. He says, this is the same guy that you have known for a long time. So everyone is astonished. And they literally run over to him to see what's happening. It is the perfect setup for Peter to gain personal notoriety or fame. But instead, he appropriately deflects all the glory where it belongs to Christ. Peter closes out his sermon by revealing that all that happened through the life of Jesus was foretold by the prophets throughout the scripture. He shows how Jesus is the greater prophet than Moses. He is the one to fulfill the promises of Abraham. Peter cannot take credit for the early church. All these people who are following Jesus, that's not me, that's him. And it's amazing because he takes all that he has done and gives the glory to Jesus. All that was coming to pass was Jesus building his church. I cannot think of many things more foolish than those people who brag about how many people they've led to Christ. That is a bizarre thing to say. Because ultimately, you could share the gospel perfectly and flawlessly with everyone you ever meet for the rest of your life, and God might not save any of them. But every single time God does save someone, it doesn't matter if your, perf- uh, your presentation was perfect. It matters that God's saving power is capable of changing any human heart. And that's why he gets all of the glory. We should be evangelizing regularly, and we should attempt to perfect our pro- uh, proclamation of the gospel. But God brings the increase. We just cast the seeds. And at the end of all things, when we lay down all of our crowns, we do so because we recognize that anything good that came from us, any victory that we've won, any trophy that we've earned, we did not have the capability of receiving those things. It is God who worked in us and through us, and to him alone be the glory forever. Amen. So I want to encourage you to see your, let the world see your good works. Live like you really know Christ. Live like you are following after him in his own footsteps. Let them see your good works, but point them rightly to Jesus. Let them see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Redirect that praise directly to the Lord where it belongs. So there's a lot more here in this text. I encourage you to study 
Next time we get together, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. I encourage you to study it ahead of time. Let's go to the Lord one last time in prayer. Father God, I ask that today, as we have considered many, many different applications, many things that we should be applying to our own lives, I pray, God, that this would be a very beneficial sermon for those who have heard. Lord, I pray that even though my words will be quickly forgotten, that your word would not be. I ask that what is in this scripture, what is in Acts chapter 3, would resonate with the heart of the individuals here, and that they would live by pursuing Christ radically. God, I pray that we would be a church that is a lighthouse in a dark place for the gospel, that many people would hear and be saved. Lord, help us to rejoice like we see this man doing, knowing from what we have been saved. I pray that you would give us a genuine zeal and a passion for your word and for your holiness and for spending time with you in our daily devotions. And God, I pray that you would help us to preach the gospel faithfully with whatever circle of influence we have, that we might be able to proclaim these truths accurately, trusting in you to bring the increase and giving you the glory when you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.